morning, everyone. We're going to start with a quick public, public service announcement, and that is that, uh, and he doesn't officially know this yet, but Brian's going to be doing a, a song service for us tonight. Uh, I told him to be ready that I'll, I'll see how I'm feeling, and I can just tell you right now, we're going to do that tonight. So uh, if you'd like to come join us tonight, we'll be singing some uh, hymns together and encourage you to be a part of that. When I was in the ninth grade, there was a status symbol uh, for which myself and all of my classmates longed in this particular class. Uh, Mrs. Ensley was our teacher, and on the first day of class, she went to the whiteboard and she drew a line down the whiteboard making two columns, and everyone's name was listed in the first column. And she told us every Friday we would have an opportunity to take a test, and if we passed that test, we would be shifted over to the second column. And it wasn't just that we got shifted over to the second column, but there were certain rights and privileges that came with it. It was a, a, a keyboard typing class, and all of us had to begin with a piece of a box that covered the keyboard so we couldn't see the buttons. We'd put our hands in there. And after, if on a Friday, if we got, I think it was at least 20 words per minute, we would be moved over to the lane and we would now be a part of what was called the Type Without a Tray Club. And it was a very honorable thing to be a part of this Type Without a Tray Club. And yet halfway through the year, I was one of the few remaining ones who were still typing with a tray. And it reminded me of being a big kid, riding with other kids, but having training wheels still on my bike. It was a little embarrassing. And so one of the first guys in our class who moved to the second column, who was freed from the box, was Brian Lynn. And so I said, Brian, can you, can you coach me? Can you help me? And he tried all sorts of things to give me advice and suggestions on how I could improve my typing, and it just didn't take. And so one day on a Friday, I had a brilliant idea. I said, Brian, here's what we're going to do. We're going to switch keyboards for the test today. And so Brian had my keyboard, and I had his keyboard, and everything started just as normally and as naturally as usual. Mrs. Ensley um, got a book out to read, got her stopwatch, and she started timing, and she began to read. And as she read, we would type out the things that she was saying. Well, Miss Ensley's, she's, she's kind of smarter than I thought she was. And as she's reading, she's walking closer and closer to me and to my keyboard, and she's looking, and she's figuring out pretty quickly that the movement of my fingers are not matching the letters as they're appearing on the computer. So she reaches down behind where the keyboard outlet, this is back when you had to plug a keyboard actually into the computer, and she followed it over, and it was right there in front of Brian. Uh, she insisted that we put them back together, and uh, she looked at me, and she giggled, and she said, valiant effort, Mr. Ford, valiant effort. Don't you wish that you could do that in other places in life where you could find somebody who was more qualified, somebody who was more skillful at something and said, why don't you do this like a math test? Why don't you do this test for me and then I will get the grade that you get on that math test. Or if you're getting into a fight with someone and you think, hey, can I tag out and let someone else substitute in for me and whatever he does to you, that can be credited to my account as far as what I did. And yet we recognize that we can't often do that, sub people out where we get their credit for their work. But we're going to find in our text 
that actually it's far more possible than that sort of thing can happen than we might tend to think. So we're going to be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 13. And this is now our second introduction to somebody that Isaiah introduced us to in chapter 42. That person there, God called my servant. Uh, somebody who has a very significant and special uh, relationship with God. And now this is the second time where this servant speaks. Now he speaks addressing the nations. And the servant begins by saying, Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you people from far away. The Lord has called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. Those first three words are really important words. It says, listen to me. It's not the first time we see those three words combined or used in the book of Isaiah. In fact, there's uh, several places where you'll find the words, listen to me. But what is unique is every other time in Isaiah where the words listen to me are offered, the subject of those words is God himself. God will say to his people, listen to me. But there is a very specific way that a, a prophet is supposed to speak. A prophet will say, thus says the Lord. Because the prophet, we recognize that the, the contribution of his words are not that they are his own words, but that they are the words of God. In fact, this is the way that Peter says it. No prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, when the prophet's speaking, the prophet's not speaking their own words. And yet this one who begins speaking in Isaiah 49 says, listen to me. And we recognize that this is someone significant. And the ministry that he is called to is a significant ministry. And he tells us that God made my mouth like a sharp sword. The weapon that he will use are his words. And, and once again, the, the words that he uses are, are not words where he quotes or where he references God, but it is his own word that is powerful like a sword. And he says that God made me like a polished arrow. Probably not a lot of us do archery today. But the polished arrow imagery is of the recognition that the arrow will go exactly where it is supposed to go. It will do exactly what it is supposed to do. This person who speaks here in Isaiah 49 is, is one who will do exactly what God intends him to do. He will go exactly where God intends him to go and he will do so in a way that is righteous, in a way that is perfect. And Isaiah 49, 3 says, And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There's a lot of debate. I'm continuing today with Jewish scholars who want to identify the servant. And there's a significant number of people who will say the servant is Israel because it says it right here. And indeed, as you read through Isaiah, there are many times where, um, where the servant is Israel, where they're recognized as the people of God. But yet there's something unique and specific here as God addresses this servant because he says later in verse 5 of the servant, he will bring Jacob back to him, that being to God, and Israel might be gathered to God. So is God saying Israel is going to bring Israel back to God? No, this servant who is called Israel is someone different, something unique. This servant 
is the one who is going to do what God always wanted Israel to do. This servant is going to be one who will fully satisfy everything that God expected of Israel to be. He will do so in a way that is faithful. He will do so in a way that is obedient. And he will do so in a way that is righteous. So God calls him Israel because he was Israel what Israel was always intended to be. So what was it that God wanted from Israel? What did God desire from Israel? He desired that they would be obedient to his instructions. So that through her... God could bless all people with the ultimate result that God's name would be glorified amongst peoples. You remember what God had said when he called Abraham? I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all of the families on earth shall be blessed. That was the calling and the purpose was that through Israel God could be a blessing to all people. But Israel wasn't obedient. Israel was rebellious. Israel refused to do the things that God gave. And there's many verses we could look at to show or to illustrate that. But Isaiah 5, 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasing planting. He expected justice, but he got bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he heard a cry. Israel did not do what she was called to do. She was not obedient to God's command. And so the question is, what is God to do? And Isaiah is telling us God is going to send a servant who will be the embodiment of all that Israel was supposed to be. That servant will obey God. That servant will bless the nations. And that servant will bring glory to God. In many ways, it's as if God is saying to Israel... Take his keyboard, use his keyboard, and his grade will be your final grade. See, when the Gospels are written, there are many places that we are told where Jesus will fulfill in a righteous way something where Israel failed. There's many examples. We'll just reference uh, Matthew chapter 4, where it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And who else was led into the wilderness? Israel was. She was brought out of Egypt. She was led in the wilderness. She knew that she was led there by God, didn't she? There's the the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud so that Israel could be sure. No matter where she went, God wanted her here. And God took Israel to the desert in order that he might test her. How'd she do in her test? She said, oh, I wish I could go back to Israel. At least there we had meat and there we had bread. Israel did not trust God. Israel was not faithful to God and she failed the test. And so for 40 years, she wandered in the wilderness. And then now Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And he is faithful in all the ways that Israel was unfaithful because Jesus is the full embodiment of what Israel was intended to be. And so the servant will accomplish this ministry so that his accomplishments could be credited to her account. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see how his good is credited to our account? And so the servant accomplishes these great things, and so you might be surprised to hear what the servant says of his ministry. 
But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Have you ever done things and you felt like while you're doing it, it's not making a difference? Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever instructed someone, said, do this and don't do this, and they do the very things you tell them not to do? Have you ever warned someone, don't do that, it's going to turn out terrible, and then they go and they do the very thing that you warned them not to do? Have you ever felt like throwing up your hands and just say, I give up? I'm not doing this anymore because no one is listening. No one is paying attention. It's not making a difference. And God's servant in his ministry does and will experience this. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus teaches. Jesus calls. Jesus instructs, and yet people disregard his words. And so what do you do when you're doing things that feel like a waste of time and a waste of effort? Well, the servant, he remedies his despair by entrusting all that he does to God. And so the servant, though he is exhausted, he says, yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. Do you see the level of trust the servant has in God? The servant is faithful doing what he was called to do, even though for many it looks like it's worthless or meaningless work. Looks like it's not producing anything, and yet the servant says, my job is to be obedient to God. And God will take that and he will make my obedience whatever he wishes to make of it. He's not focused on the results. He's not focused on what other people are saying about it. He just simply is faithful to the thing for which God has called him. I think in this life, we can either be committed to the process or to the product. To be married to the product means you're focused only on the outcomes. You're going to keep changing what you do to get bigger applause and a bigger paycheck and more status. Because there's some things out there that there are always audiences who are willing to give accolades to people. There are awards and rewards for certain kinds of people. And there's a huge temptation to say, well, I want to do something that gets all those accolades. I want to get something that, that can help me gather in all those rewards and all that recognition. And if you live that way, you're being married to the product. But to be married to the process means you'll be faithful regardless of how things are turning out. You just keep showing up. You just keep doing the little things. You keep working even when everyone else around you is saying, this is such a waste of your time. Because you know that that's what happens to the servants of God. They get tired. They get exhausted. But God doesn't call us to just simply focus on and evaluate the results. He just calls us to be faithful to the things that we're doing. When reflecting on his presidency, Barack Obama once said, the daily grind didn't always match the more glamorous role. In other words, he's saying there's a lot of people who say, hey, do you want to be president? And they think of the status. They say, yeah, I want to be the president. 
But if you ask him about the process of everything that's involved in being the president, the daily grind day after day, no, there's not many people who want to go through the process of being the president. And so the servant, he goes through the daily grind of being faithful to God, even when it seems like there's nothing to show for it. And he entrusts himself to the Lord, and he knows that God is his reward. So then he says, and now the Lord says, so God speaking to He's, as the servant is sharing what God had shared with him. He says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Throughout Isaiah chapter 40 through 49, uh, Isaiah will bounce between these two kind of twin themes. Sometimes he will talk about how they will be delivered from Babylon, Last week, we learned that God had told us the way he's going to do that is through uh, Cyrus. God's going to raise up someone from the east. And then God will, will switch over at times to talk about deliverance from sin. And what we're talking about in this section is clearly about the deliverance from sin. Because this person is not going to bring them back to Jerusalem. That's Cyrus's ministry. What this person is going to do is he's going to bring Jacob back to God himself. He's going to gather Israel to him. He's going to restore the relationship between God and Israel. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, we see that what sin does, among other things, is it, it tarnishes and it breaks the relationship between God and mankind. And a part of God's plan was to work through Israel in order to bring that restoration, yet Israel herself was unfaithful. And so God, through this servant, is going to begin mending those broken relationships in the ways that sin has destroyed and hurt that relationship. But the relationship is not just simply going to be with and through Israel. We're going to find out. This is what the prophet says. This is what the servant says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See that? What he's saying is to just bring Israel back into the right relationship, oh, that's something too small, something too little for what I have in store for my servant. Instead, what he is going to do is he's going to bring all people back into a right relationship with God. And I like how the, the ASV says it here, that thou mayest be my salvation until the ends of the earth. The servant isn't simply the vehicle that is used to transport the message of salvation. The servant is actually the means of salvation. When the servant is to be brought to the ends of the earth, it's not the message of the servant, but the servant himself will be brought to the ends of the earth. And when that, that servant is brought, salvation will come with him. And God's road to salvation is not always as direct as we might like it to be. It has twists and turns along the way. And so of the servant, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one dis deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers. What kind of a servant God calls? A servant who is despised, abhorred, a slave. The servant will experience the lowest treatment of all mankind. And the thing we need to realize is he is telling us what God said to him before it happened. He knew he would be despised. He knew he would be abhorred. 
He knew he would be treated like a slave. Have you ever looked back on your life and said, if only I knew, I would have done something completely different. But what Isaiah is telling us is that this servant knew exactly how he was going to be treated, exactly how he was going to be received. And even with that awareness, he did what his father called him to do. And that's because the servant knows that God is a God of great reversals. What happens to this one who is despised and abhorred, a slave to the rulers? Then kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. The pathway to glory is always through humiliation through lowering one's own life. And the servant knows that the one who is despised and abhorred will eventually, when he enters the room, kings will stand and princes will kneel because God will make all things right. Trusting in God means that we have to know this to be true. What Orson Welles says, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. Have you ever stopped in the middle of a story and said, this is not going well. It's not working out here. But what the servant knew is that even his death on a cross was not the end of the story. The God had more in store. The God had more to do in him and with him and through him. The ending will always be worth it to those who are obedient to God. In Isaiah chapter 49, in 8 through 12, we switch from the servant speaking to the nations to now God speaking to the servant. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. On a day of salvation, I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the ways, and on the heights, all the bare heights, shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them down. For he has pity on them, and he will lead them. By springs of water he will guide them. And I will turn my mountains into a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Lo, these shall come from far away. And lo, these from the north and from the west, and these, uh, and these from the land of Cyrene. Do you see what this servant is given as? He's given as a covenant to the people. He doesn't represent a covenant. He doesn't stand on behalf of a covenant. He himself is the covenant. We've learned that he is the word. We've learned that he is the salvation that goes to the end of the earth. And now we learn that he is the very covenant between God and his people. You remember what Jesus said there at the Last Supper? He took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of what? Of the covenant, which is poured out for many the forgiveness of sins. The gospel message is simply that we can approach God because of what this servant has done. The gospel message is that somebody has traded a keyboard with us, and their score becomes our score. 
The gospel message is that he gives his life so that we might have life. His obedience becomes our obedience and his victory becomes our victory. And here's what happens as a result of this servant's ministry. It is a time of favor. The language is a reference to the description of the Jubilee. Once every 50 years, there would be this process of renewal and of restoration so that all things would be made right again. And Jubilee had these four aspects to it. The lost land is restored. Israelite slaves are set free. There's the cancellation of debts. And there is rest for the land. This servant is going to bring a Jubilee. He's going to bring a time of celebration, but not just for Israel. Verse 12 says, it is for those who are from far away. And there are expectations that the jubilee that this servant brings will surpass any other jubilee. It's not just slaves that are set free, but our slavery to sin will be removed. It's not just financial debts that are canceled, but our spiritual indebtedness to sin is canceled. And it's not just return to land or rest for the land, but it is the return to the promised rest that God gave. And so the question for us becomes, what, we, what will we do with this servant whom we know as Jesus? There is a word of warning in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That rest of Jubilee is open to all. But we need to come to the Jesus who offers us that rest. And for those of us who have received already that rest, then this becomes for us a recognition of the kind of response God expects. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. My hope is that this week will be a week of joy for you to realize we have experienced the jubilee, the celebration of the Jesus who has come, who has become sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God. What they expected and anticipated is something we have experienced in and through Jesus Christ. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And we realize that as we go from here, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond in any way, we're going to stand and sing a song. And I hope it's a song of joy as we stand and as we sing. But if you'd like to respond in any way, come to the back while we stand and sing this song together. Let's stand.